So every Sunday morning when we gather here at Gateway, one of the things that we do is we try our best to offer as much as we know of ourselves to as much as we know of God. And we do that in part by singing songs because we believe that music is the language of the heart. We also do that by breaking open the Bible and doing our best to examine it honestly and consistently and deeply because we believe that the Bible is actually God's Word. And we believe that it's primary for us in terms of our faith and our lives. It's our habit, especially during each summer, and we've been doing this for a number of years, to take a book in the Bible and do a deeper dive. It's a little bit more academic approach even than we sometimes have on Sunday mornings at Gateway. We take a book of the Old Testament or of the New Testament and we tear it open and we pick it apart and we also apply it to our lives. I'm really excited about the series that we're going to be working through this summer for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're going to be looking at a... a an extremely practical and titanic work of God's uh, Spirit. We know of it as the book of James. So James's letter to a group of Christians in the first century, just a couple of decades after Jesus' death. Now James, if you have a Bible, it's located at the back of the New Testament. Even though you're going to hear in a minute, it was probably one of the first books or letters written after Jesus' death. It may have been the first. I'm also excited this morning, honestly, I really believe that the message today is as important as any message I've preached at Gateway. It's a message about perspective. And I've actually prayed for you and myself this morning that we would be able to grab this and grab God's perspective from this because this is just an incredible, rich passage of Scripture. Now, in working our way through the book of James, we could take one paragraph at a time. But in order to make it through during the summer, we're taking larger sections in that, and we're looking at larger sections taken together. I'm also really excited about working through the book of James this summer because I've had a group of people meet with me three times so far, and we're going to meet more, to just kind of help me unpack James, to do some of the analysis of it. And a number of those folks are going to be preaching this summer. So you're going to get to hear from someone other than me, and if anybody claps, I'll be offended. But it's going to be a great opportunity to hear from a number of folks, a really rich perspective this summer. So I'm I'm looking forward to this, and I think that you'll find the book of James to be profound, but also eminently practical. James, more than many of the books of the Bible, James is right down where, where we live. So excited about this, a great deal. Let's kick this off this morning with a word of prayer, and now that I've just been obnoxious and had you stand and sit and stand and sit and move, I'm going to have you stand again, so let's do some spiritual aerobics and let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's dedicate ourselves to Him this morning, and let's pray that our hearts will be open to hear from Him. I think this is really critically important today. I'm going to be encouraging the folks who are away this weekend, both our vacationers and our dads, to listen to this later, because I I think this is not only lays the foundation for the summer, but this is just a critically important message today. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, hear our prayer this morning. I ask Jesus that you would, this morning, for some of us, that you would clear the lenses 
on our glasses, on our perspective. They've gotten foggy from busyness or misplaced priorities, and we pray that you would clear, that you would give us your perspective. And for others of us, Lord, we have never been able to fully embrace your perspective. And I pray that today would be a significant step in that direction. Lord, anything this morning that is causing our heart or our spirit to resist or to be distracted, we turn that over to you. We confess that we are so easily distanced or distracted and we give that to you now. We ask you to forgive us. Lord, we give you permission to speak. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so Gallup has been polling America on its belief in God since right before World War II. And in fact, right before World War II, the Gallup poll in answer to the direct question, do you believe in God, found out that 96% of Americans said they believed in God. Interestingly, shortly after World War II, Gallup Poll did it again and found that 94% of Americans said they believed in God. Then through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, consistently, When Gallup did its polling and asked the direct question, do you believe in God, 98% of Americans said, yes, indeed, they do believe in God. And that number is still extraordinarily high. It hasn't changed much in recent decades. The the latest polling, I think, was done in 2010, and they found that 92% of an extraordinarily high percentage of Americans, more than 9 out of 10 Americans, say that they believe in God. They say they have faith. I've broken that down a little bit for us. Isn't this interesting? 90% of men said yes, 94% of women, which lets us know what we've always known. Women are better and smarter. I thought this was an interesting breakdown too. Just FYI, next slide, Jonathan. 18 to 29-year-olds, 84% say they believe in God. They're young and still in charge of their lives. And then after that, 30 to 49 years, 59 to 64-year-olds, 65 plus, 94% of us say that we believe in God if you're in one of those categories. I thought this last one was fascinating too. Republicans, 98% of you say you believe in God, only 89% of independents. Evidently, the independents are the most godless ones among us. But if James is to be believed, then it's not enough to say that you believe in God. That's not good enough. In fact, if James is to be believed, then that faith may actually not work for you. It may not impact you. It may not help you. It may not help you manage your life at all. In fact, there may not be any translation between your faith and your life. Your faith really might be, some of this 94%, your faith is, James would consider, Worthless. If you miss everything else this summer, don't miss this. In order for your faith to work, your faith must work. So this summer we're going to be talking about faith that works. And today we're going to be looking at a 
key way, maybe several ways. It's really, we can organize it under one theme, but it's, it's several key ways in which your faith must work in order for your faith to work. Because in order for your faith to work, your faith must work. All right, a couple of little footnotes about James. The author, actually, and the book was originally written as the New Testament was, in Greek, and the author in Greek, the Greek translates the Hebrew name, it's actually Jacob. And in Hebrew, the name of this character is Jacob, and in Greek it's translated Jacob. And I don't know why, but in the middle centuries in English, somehow the name Jacob, I, I've tried to find this out and I, I, I can't figure out how this happened, but somehow in the middle centuries in English, the name Jacob got translated both James and Jacob. So both of those names in English come from the name Jacob. I don't know if James was originally a a nickname for Jacob. In fact, you can see this early in English history, the reign of King James in which the King James Bible was translated. The reign of King James, some of you may know, is the Jacobean period. So for some reason, both of these names came out of the name Jacob. And interestingly, if I'm going to tell you in a second who the author of the work of this letter was, but uh, if it was James, the brother of Jesus, which it almost certainly was, then he was named after his paternal grandfather. So Joseph's father was named Jacob, and you can imagine that Joseph and Mary may have wanted their firstborn to have been named Jacob, but he was born under extraordinary circumstances, so his next brother ended up being named Jacob. But through the summer, we'll call it James anyway, because that's what us evidently English speakers do. Even though this letter gives its author's name, it doesn't exactly specify exactly his identity. What James was it? And often these things will be spelled out in the New Testament letters, but they're not in the letter that James wrote. So there are several possibilities that have been offered by scholars over the centuries. One is James, the son of Zebedee. Some of you have heard of him. He was one of the 12 disciples. But according to Acts chapter 12, James, son of Zebedee, died sometime before 44 AD and almost certainly died too early to leave any literary remains, and this letter included. It could have been James, the son of Alphaeus, who's also mentioned in the New Testament, but he drops from sight pretty early, and it would also be very unlikely for him to have written anything, including this letter, and especially to have written with such authority. We'll talk about that later as we go through the summer. It could have also been some unknown James, some James that's been lost to history, but overwhelmingly, the most likely candidate to have written this note is James the Just. Let me give you some of the reasons. Number one, the early church believed this, so they must have had some good reason for believing that the author was James the Just. And secondly, he alone of all the Jameses had the authority to speak to such a broad audience. And this letter is written, it says in in, uh, verses 1 and 2, to the 12 tribes. In this case, it was Jewish Christians, folks of Jewish birth who had converted to following Jesus the 12 tribes scattered. So James is exercising quite a bit of authority. Plus, he, he just identifies himself as James with no add-ons. So you suspect that this was a guy of some significant authority. Plus, the, the flow and even the language, uh, the, the words that are used in the syntax, fit well with what we know about James the Just from the New Testament. There's a brief speech from James the Just in Acts chapter 15, and it has some of the same kind of Greek and some of the same kind of syntax that we find in the letter. And also there's an ancient Jewish historian, Hegesippus, who gives us a little information about James the Just, and what we know about James the Just fits very well with this letter. 
So James the Just was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Probably from the beginning, but certainly after Peter left and went to Rome, James the Just became the de facto bishop in Jerusalem. James the Just is the one that Paul talks to when he needs to come to Jerusalem to talk about what's been happening in his ministry. And so Paul comes to Jerusalem. They have a business meeting like we're going to have right after church. And in this business meeting, Paul meets with the Jerusalem leaders and he says, hey, look, i got to tell you what's happening. I'm going all over Europe and people are actually believing and they're following Jesus. We're seeing wild stuff happen. It's like the ministry of Jesus and it's Gentiles. Now this would have been a little shocking to the church in Jerusalem, so they needed to make a ruling on that. What do they do with that? How do they handle the fact that so many Gentiles are becoming Christians? Do they need to become Jews first and then uh, become followers of Jesus? And that complicated question gets unwound in the New Testament. They end up saying, you know, no, they need to follow some basic dietary restrictions and they need to be sexually moral, but other than that... They don't need to become Jews because really it's just Jesus. What we're offering is just Jesus. And for them, I think this was a deeper realization of the path that they were following. So Paul comes to the Jerusalem council and James the Just is the one who makes the final determination for the direction of the church and what's going to happen with these Gentile Christians. Most interestingly, James the Just was the brother of Jesus. Now we pause there for dramatic effect because I suspect that many, maybe most of you had a brother or sister. So I want you to imagine growing up with your brother or sister and ending up worshiping them and calling them the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When was it written and how was this book composed? According to the Jewish historian Josephus, Jesus' brother James was martyred in 62 A.D., which was one of the reasons that many of the, the Jews living in Jerusalem scattered, because martyrdom was coming. If James authored this book, then it had to have been written before 62 A.D. That makes it very, very early. But most scholars believe this letter was written around or even right before 50 A.D., This would put it less than 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And this would make it the oldest book in the New Testament. And there are good reasons to believe this. Let me give you a few. First of all, this letter has a very strong Jewish orientation. You'll see that as we read through it. Which fits better with a very early dating before the prevailing Gentile influence had entered the church. Secondly, there's no evidence of the Judaizing conflict. And the Judaizing conflict was that conflict I was talking about between Paul and the the business meeting that he had with the Jerusalem council when they were trying to decide how Jewish do we need the faith to be. And there were those who went out preaching to these new converts, and many of them converts that had become Christians, they'd become Christ followers because of Paul's influence. And other teachers came behind the Apostle Paul and, whoa, 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 you're getting all of this wrong. Really, all this is based on the Old Testament. And Paul would write some of his letters to say, you know, yes, we're built on the foundation of the prophets, but this is about Jesus and Jesus only. I mean, he's what satisfies. He's what we need. It's not even about the law. It's about Jesus. 
You don't find any of that Judaizing influence in James's letter, another indication that it was written very early. And interestingly, in chapter 2 of James, verse 2, and go look at this later, our New Testament translates a word meeting, but that word in Greek is synagogue, which was a very early designation for the gathering of both Jews and Christ-following Jews. So this points to an early period as well and a strongly Jewish influence. So how would this letter have been constructed? And I want to take just a second. I'm not going to spend much time talking about this because it's speculative, but I wanted to take a second and talk about this because if you're ever reading the Bible and you sit back and periodically you've had at some point to ask yourself a question like, wait, how did this happen? How, how did we get this? So I was reading one commentary this week on the book of James that he's not alone in this, but he has a, a great theory that he advances on how something like this might have happened. It's just a couple of sentences. Let me read you what he says. He talks about the process that might have taken place that would have eventuated in a letter like James's. He says this, the hypothesis is quite simple. The epistle is very likely a two-stage work. The first stage would have been a series of Jewish Christian homilies, sayings, and maxims, many of which would have been composed in Greek by a person who spoke Aramaic as his mother tongue, while others may have been straight translations. And then there's a great deal of work by scholars on how well James the Just may have known Greek, and most conclude that he probably spoke Greek very fluently. So he's saying it likely began as brief sermons by James, or James sayings that he would say repeatedly, or maxims that came from James that may have been offered in Greek, or maybe they were offered in Aramaic, and someone who was acting as James's scribe wrote them down and translated them into Greek for others whose Greek was better than their Aramaic. Then he talks about the second stage. He said the second stage would have been the compilation of an epistle by editing these pieces together into a whole to make them fit and to explain, in effect, James's theology. He goes on to suggest that James himself would have done that work, maybe with the help of a mentee. There are others who suggest that, that someone else may have done that work for James. I tend to believe that James himself did that work of collating and bringing it together. When you read the book of James... The book of James, and as you're reading it, and I hope you will read it several times this summer, as you read the book of James, one of the things that has struck me about James is how practical and how hard-punching James is. James does not pull punches. But it also feels to me in first reading pretty choppy. He's talking about this, and wow, that's really good. Boom, he's talking about something else, almost like he's saying, you know, maxims and sayings that would have been edited together. And yet, If you read James consistently, and the group that was reading it through with me over the last few weeks has been very helpful in this regard. As you read it through, you begin to sense there really is, there's a flow, there's a unity. James is going somewhere. And what James is consistently pointing to and what we need to point ourselves toward this summer, what we need to allow James to point us toward, what we really need to allow the Holy Spirit to use James to point us toward is faith that works. Because in order for your faith to work, your faith must work. Following Jesus is not a consumer project. It's not an observation sport. This is a jump in and get involved and get sweaty. So that's where we're going this summer.
Who did James write the letter to? It's clear from the text that he has written to a Jewish audience, as I said. These are people who grew up Jewish, who probably lived originally in and around Jerusalem or in the nearby vicinity. And in the process, some of you know the story of Pentecost and that whole situation. A number of people became Christians, including many, by the way, former Pharisees. And these folks began to gather together under the leadership of James the Just. And this would have been the audience, except it's clear from the opening that he's written to the Jewish Christians who've been scattered from Jerusalem. So these are former Christian converts, as I said, who, who were essentially James's congregation in Jerusalem. And James would feel some spiritual concern, and he would have some spiritual authority over this group, obviously. And many of these folks would have left Jerusalem probably because of the persecution of Stephen. So if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know at one point an important Christ follower named Stephen is giving testimony that Jesus is the Messiah and he ends up being stoned and killed. And this sets off what was probably a wave of the persecution of Christ followers because there were many good Jews who believed that this was a a heresy that needed to be put to an end. And so there would have been many folks and many individuals who would have left Jerusalem and scattered out of fear in the aftermath of the persecution and the martyrdom of Stephen, or they may have left for other reasons. They may have left for economic reasons. They're probably living in Syria and parts of Asia Minor. They may have perhaps been living as far as Europe. And so the letter would have been copied and sent to various locations, various synagogues, meeting throughout Syria and Asia Minor and maybe as far as into Europe. These folks are still gathering to worship Jesus and they're still living largely within a Jewish context. So diet and the festivals, and again, they were calling their meetings synagogue. And they're also, and this is important to remember, to set us up for this morning and the rest of the summer, they were feeling very at odds with their surroundings. They were feeling very at odds with the culture into which they have been thrown. There seems to be, if you read deeply, there seems to be some kind of tension between an agricultural class and a merchant class. It may be that many of these folks were farmers in the areas outside and around Jerusalem. They may have even been wealthy farmers and don't read merchant class as you know wealthy class because in this day this was still an agrarian culture. So wealthy farmers were still the wealthiest people because they own large tracts of land, obviously. So some having left that, they've moved into Syria or especially into Greek-dominated Asia Minor, and they're now in a completely different cultural milieu. So they're now trying to figure out some way of making a living as merchants. What does my life mean and how do I make it fit? In any case, for them culturally, the rules have changed. So James wants to remind them that you cannot put your faith on the shelf. It must be put into action. And when it is put into action, it makes a difference in how you act and how you react to life. When you put your faith into action, it makes a difference in how you act and how you react to life. It's not just an an ascent to an idea. It's not just something we put on the shelf. It is our life. It's our governing principle. In order for your faith to work, your faith must work. And when your faith works, it makes all the difference. Okay, so one more time. We're going to read James 1, 
1 through 18. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look at this first titanic section of the book of James. We're beginning to work our way through this summer. Faith that works. Study the book of James. James 1, 1 through 18. If you have a phone, dial up James on your phone, and it will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. But we're going to be actually looking at sections of it as we go through this morning, so I would encourage you to have access to the Bible somehow. And once again, spiritual aerobics. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. Let's go old school. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, my brother, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Another indication that this letter was written fairly early, James has not yet adopted what would have been Paul's practice of kind of bringing together the Greek and the Jewish culture, and he does it intentionally when Paul often says grace and peace. But here James simply says, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Huh? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Additionally, it adds, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Okay, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. You may be seated. So we like to think of ourselves as in control of our own lives. I woke up this morning and I decided what color socks I put on and 
While some of you may question that decision, it was my decision and I made it. We like to think of ourselves as the CEO, the chief executive officer of our own lives. We like to think of ourselves as making decisions, making plans, and executing on those plans. And we're in charge, we're in control, we make things happen, and over time we realize increasingly that that's a fiction. We're not the CEO of our own lives there is an infinite amount of data to prove to you and I that we are bombarded by an array of circumstances and even feelings that are outside of our control. We are not the CEO. I'm going to suggest this morning for you that you take another job. This is the second point today because one was for the whole series and this is for our lesson today. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. You are not the CEO of your life but you are the CPO. You're not the chief executive officer who makes decisions and hires and fires and says, get it done, buy low and sell high, but you are the CPO. You're the chief perspective officer. You are the one that chooses the perspective on your life, and that choice makes all the difference. Faith opens our eyes It gives us a new perspective. It enables us to see reality as it really is. It enables us to be the right kind of healthy CPO of our own lives. And this perspective allows us to manage our lives with newfound courage and joy regardless of our circumstances. We're not the victims of anyone or anything because we know God is in control and we can see it. And this perspective changes everything. When we act as CPO of our own life, when we see with faith, this is what we see, and I'm going to pause and let these sink in. I've, I've got, if you're listening later, then I want you to open your Bible to the book of James and walk through these several paragraphs together and you'll see what I mean. But I've got the Scripture next to each point here and I'm going to pause for a second and let you read it. When we see with faith, this is what we see. We see that trials eventually result in me being mature and complete. When I act as the chief perspective officer of my own life, I see that trials eventuate in me being mature and complete. I see, secondly, that my humble circumstances actually place me in high standing. More than that, faith informs me that all that is to my gain, all that makes me rich here in this life is nothing. It's passing away. Next, when I see with the eyes of faith and when I'm the CPO of my own life, I see that I'm actually blessed when I'm persecuted. And when the Bible uses that word blessed, you can substitute almost, I'm in the right place when I'm persecuted. Jesus told us this, but faith actually sees it. When I see with the eyes of faith, I see that testing and temptation are not from God. As CPO of my life, I see that God has no part in testing and temptation except that He wants to deliver me. Finally, when I act as the CPO of my own life, I see that I'm not the source of my good fortune or my fortune. When good things happen, it's not because I made it happen. It's not the strength of my hand or my cleverness or my talent or my connections, or my good breaks. 
All good things come to me as a gift from God the Father. And I see that when I'm acting as a CPO of my own life. Some of you are familiar enough with the story arc of the New Testament. You know Paul's story. And one of the things Paul relates to us from his testimony, Paul says at one point, hey, you know what? Those things that I used to count toward my credit, that's all lost to me. The things that were gained to me, I now see those things as worthless. Do you see how flipped and upside down the world is when we follow Jesus? Our testimony is for all of us is if we've really become CPO of our own lives, our testimony, all of us, is some version of that same thing. All that I used to find confidence in, all that used to be to my gain, all that was on, on this side of the ledger, I now actually see on this side of the ledger as a loss. It's upside down. And this is what we do, Gateway. This is what we do here on Sunday morning. This is what we're about. We remind one another of that. This is the role that we play in one another's lives. Hey, yeah, I know it's tough, but remember. And we flip it upside down. Remember, you're the chief perspective officer of your own life. And, and here's what chief perspective officer means. It means that this trial is going to result in you being mature and complete. Awesome. And it means that your humble circumstances, that actually places you at the top of the list. It means that when you're persecuted, you're blessed. It means that when you're tested and tempted, that's not from God. God's looking for a way out for you. It means that when good stuff happens to you, it's not because you're making it happen. It's because God the Father is good and generous. So how does faith maintain this perspective? And now the rubber meets the road. (laughs) When there's very little love left in my marriage, how does faith see this as an opportunity for God to grow me? How do I not get completely lost in the despair and loneliness of it? When I've lost my job, I feel like I can't provide for my family. I feel like less of a person. I feel unable. I feel inadequate. How do I not sink into depression and anger? How do I keep from blaming God? When I find out I've got cancer, when my boyfriend breaks up with me, when I lose or fail or get passed over. Okay, I'm not CEO of my own life. How do I become the CPO? I believe in God, along with the other 92% of Americans. But how does that belief help me make it through? James offers at least six practical suggestions for us. And please, don't dial out yet. Let's just walk through these. Number one, first of all, I consider it all joy. This is how authoritative James is and the letter of James is. There are 46 imperatives in this letter. (laughs) 46 orders from Bishop James the Just. And this is the first one. Brothers and sisters, consider it joy whenever you face a trial. Just put that in the joy category. It's upside down. Take it out of this category and put it in this category. It calls for action. Consider it joy. What? Yes. How? Because you know something new and profound. You know, because faith has shown it to you. You know that trials build perseverance and perseverance eventuates in you being mature and complete. So first of all, consider it all joy. Consider it. Second, 
if you still lack, if you're still confused about how to make it all work, if you're still undone by the complexity of your own life, if you feel like a Jew trying to make her life and family work while living in a foreign land among a foreign people and a foreign culture that you don't understand, well, ask God for wisdom. Ask. Ask God. He won't judge you or blame you. He won't wonder why you again. God, how do I make this work? How exactly is this to my benefit? How are you at work in it? And how should I respond? God, give me wisdom. Ask, and He'll give it generously. Third, boast about your humble circumstances. Work against the grain. Don't brag about your new car or your new promotion or the latest award that your children got or look at me, I'm traveling first class and I've got a leather briefcase. Brag about your humble circumstances. Brag about the difficulties. Brag about how you missed it again, but God is still good. Ed, how's your son Jordan doing? He's doing great. We really see his character developing. It's been some difficulty, but you know what? He's handling it. Yeah, but how's he doing? How's his job? How much money is he making? And you know what? He's going deeper with God. And we still have a connection with him. (laughs) What is he doing? And how's his bank account? And who's his girlfriend? Who is his girlfriend? Boast about your humble circumstances. Work against the grain. This is counter to everything that suburban America has trained you and I to do and be. Can you see why people thought Jesus' kingdom was completely upside down? According to Jesus, the way to lead was to serve. The way to be first is to place yourself last. The way to live is to die. Fourth, if I'm going to be chief prospective officer for my own life, I will live with the end in mind. I'll live with the end in mind. I won't get caught up in my current irritation. Even when something severe happens, even if I'm persecuted, I'll consider myself blessed. I'll know I'm blessed because I know that I'll receive a reward at the end of this life that far exceeds the burden of this current difficulty. I will live with the end in mind. John, as I, I didn't ask your permission, but as I was thinking about this this week, I couldn't help but think of that really pivotally important experience for you. You were early in your walk of following Jesus, and we had the opportunity of Ina being here, and it may have been your first time meeting Ina, and Ina's a woman that we support in the Dominican Republic. And Jan was going through a particularly difficult time, and this was not something to toss off. It was an extremely difficult time, and Jan was sharing it vulnerably with Ina, and Ina, I don't remember exactly, you'll have to tell me later, but Ina said something to Jan like, wow, God must really love you. God must really love you. God must have a huge amount of confidence in you to think that you can weather this, and through it, you'll be better. God must really love you, and for Jan, it was like, what are you talking about? This doesn't feel like love. And then it flipped it went upside down and i've had Jan give me that exact same advice many times and some of you have and i've heard him give it to some of you Jan, and you moan and you do something else and you complain and Jan says wow but think of the opportunity what that's how you become the chief prospective officer of your own life 
Fifth, if I'm going to be a faithful CPO of my own life, I will not blame God. I will refuse to justify myself. I will actively work to protect God in my own mind and heart. I know that when I make a mess of things, it's because I followed my own evil desires which enticed me. That's what's happened. And I allowed those desires to conceive what they wanted and to lead me into sin. And here's the thing, I'm not surprised by the resulting death that I experience. Because that's what happens when I allow myself to be enticed in that direction. I know that death is always the result of sin. Even though it's a tough pill to swallow, this is the way a faithful CPO sees it because this is reality. Diane and I, many years ago, we had a 25-year-old girl asked to meet with us one time, and as a part of this conversation, she wasn't doing well, and as a part of this conversation, she told us that influential teacher in her life, someone who'd been responsible for a club and had been an influence in this young girl's life, this teacher had, quote, ruined my life and went on to describe what was essentially a teacher that didn't like her. And Diane and I thought, ruined your life. (laughs) Why would you give someone that much control? They didn't ruin your life. You lost perspective. You haven't acted like the chief perspective officer of your own life. Finally, if I'm going to be the chief perspective officer of my own life, I won't be deceived by my own control over things. I will not be deceived. I'm not in control. I'm not the CEO, I'm the CPO. So I know every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. The Father of heavenly light. God gave it. There's an alternative, and let's end. There's an alternative to being the CPO of your own life. You can let your circumstances shape your view of yourself and your future. And then you allow yourself to be guided by your natural emotional responses to those circumstances. You can be tossed here or there by whatever circumstances present to you. So when you lose your job, you're no good. You're not a provider. You're not worthy. And then you have to live in the mire of the emotions that result from that. That's the alternative. Since you're the CEO, it must be your fault. Or if you're clever... You find someone else to blame, maybe even God. And you become bitter and depressed. When good things happen, you brag and you take responsibility because you're the CEO. But when bad things happen, you get bitter and you blame because you're the CEO. That's the alternative. And that's no way to manage a life. And it is the way, make no mistake, it is the way our culture manages itself. It is the soup in which you and I are cooked. Helen Roosevelt was a British doctor who spent 20 years from 1953 to 1973 serving hospitals and churches as a medical missionary in the Congo. During the period early in her life when she was feeling first called to missions, Dr. Roosevelt heard another woman speak at a conference compellingly about fully giving your life to Christ. Dr. Rosevere had the opportunity to speak with this other woman later, and this woman wrote Philippians 3.10 in her Bible. 
I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Then the woman said this to Dr. Rosevere. Tonight you've entered into the first part of that verse, that I may know Him. This is only the beginning. There's a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of His resurrection. And also, God willing, one day perhaps, the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. After Dr. Rosevere had been in the Congo for many years, there was a revolution. She chose to stay in the missionary compound and to serve the local hospital through the conflict, even though most other Western missionaries left. Ultimately, as many expected, the rebels attacked the compound and held the missionaries and those who lived and worked among the missionaries. The rebels held them prisoner for five months. During this time, Dr. Rosevere was repeatedly beaten, verbally abused, and raped. During the worst part of it, during the night of her brutal assault, she shares this as her testimony. I wasn't praying. I was beyond praying. But someone back home was praying earnestly for me. If I had prayed any prayer, it would have been, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then suddenly there was God. I didn't see a vision I didn't hear a voice, I just knew with everything else in my being that God was actually, vitally there. God in all His majesty and power. He stretched out His arms to me. He surrounded me with His love, and He seemed to whisper to me, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, of sharing in my suffering. This is it. Don't you want it? Fantastic, she says. The privilege of being identified with our Savior. As I was driven down the short corridor of my home, it was as though he clearly said to me that these are not your sufferings. They're not beating you. These are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. And an enormous relief swept over me. One word came unbelievably clear. And that word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there. But now it was altogether different. It was with Him. It was for Him. It was in Him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of His suffering. In the weeks of imprisonment that followed and in the subsequent years of continued service, looking back, one has tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of the privilege. And then she looks at her audience and she says, Can you? Will you? Believe it? And enter in? Dr. Rosevere went on to establish a training college and to become an author, trainer, and speaker of international repute and influence. In fact, I heard her speak to a conference of almost 30,000 American college students in 1980. How? 
How? How did this experience not overwhelm her and defeat her and leave her crippled and sidelined? How? How did this not ruin her life? Because Helen Roosevelt was the CPO of her own life. Let's pray. Loving Lord, I have no doubt you have much to say to our hearts and our minds this morning. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would clear the way. That you would move past our defenses. As best we're able, we open ourselves up to you today and we ask you to give us your perspective on us and on our circumstances. Give us your perspective on our difficulties. Give us your perspective on our joys and our triumphs. Oh God, we have tried to manage our own lives as CEO and it has not worked. So today we surrender to you. And we ask, help us be the CPO. Lord, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we've taken up the reins of our own lives and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have tried to find our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure apart from you. And we've ended at a dead end. We've ended in death and we've wondered why. Forgive us and have mercy. We're so deeply thankful that you are happy to do so. So today we receive your forgiveness. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.